this country could be great, not again, but it could be great in a real way where it accepts all its citizens as equal and respect the fact that we all live and breathe on this planet and we need each other. You know, but you can't move forward saying all lives matter when one segment of the race is being slaughtered and killed. That was Henry Lee Wallace V, chairman of the San Diego Black Panther Party. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. For today's episode, we're going to stray a little bit off the film path. I'm going to continue my discussion with David F. Walker about the Black Panther Party, and I'm going to combine it with an interview I did with Henry Lee Wallace V, who's a member of the San Diego Black Panther Party. I just put up a podcast on Black Films That Matter, featuring David F. Walker, talking about some underappreciated films that you might want to watch during this current wave of protests. David is also writing a graphic novel about the Black Panther Party, and although we talked about that a little bit in the previous podcast, I wanted this podcast to focus a little bit more on his book and on the Black Panther Party. So to start with, I'm going to talk a little bit more with David Walker about the research he's done on the Black Panther Party. When we first organized the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, he would say, Bobby, he says, we're going to draw up a basic platform, just basic, that black people can read. He says, we don't want to go real elaborate with all these essays and dissertations and all this stuff, because the brother going to look at that and he say, man, I ain't got time for that. I got to go see what I can do for myself. He said, just a basic platform that the mothers who struggle hard to raise us that the fathers who worked hard, that the young brothers in school who come out of school semi-literate, you say we want freedom, we want power to determine the destiny of our black community. Full employment for our people. What do you think the legacy of the Black Panthers is? How do you think they're remembered in history and, and by people? Well, the, you know, the legacy of the Black Panther Party is really interesting to me because as I was doing research on, on my book, I. I got the feeling that they're they're more of like a myth than anything else. They've become like this legendary group and and people don't really understand them. So you you kind of have to dig deep. Now, that was my perception, we'll say two years ago when I started doing research and I I knew what the organization was about. Um, But I think that that legacy has changed dramatically just in in a relatively short amount of time as the um, Black Lives Matter movement has really picked up steam and where, you know, the defund police movement is is happening. And, And if you study the history of the Panthers, you realize that basically everything they were working towards, all the good things that they were working towards are still issues today, right? And and so it's and it's not even like they were ahead of their time because the issues that they were fighting against in 66, 67 were issues going back into the 30s and, and even into the you know 19th century. So um I think that, that legacy is is complicated and we're still we still need to figure it out in part because there's still a lot of misinformation about them and um but there's also a, a lot to be learned from both their triumphs and their um, and their defeats. 
So in talking to Henry Wallace, he said he joined when he was a teenager, like 16. And the thing that impressed him or that really drew him to the group was this sense of they they had this powerful image and did not seem to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And it seems like one of the things that lingers about them is this image of, you know, the Black Panthers with guns and with their black leather jackets and walking, you know, through the streets and protecting neighborhoods. And I'm wondering, that sense of fearlessness that they conveyed and that sense of power, do you think that's the thing that really made them so scary to police and the government and that's that's why they were so committed to kind of bringing the panther party down because that was something that was i don't want to say it's brand new but like it it was it was i mean it was something that had a very powerful impact on like mainstream america to see those images yeah no most definitely i think that you know part of the the image a huge part of the image of the Black Panthers, especially in the early days of, of the, the party forming, was this very militant look. They tend to dress very similarly, all in black with the black berets, and they carried guns. And, you, you know, you have to keep in mind that this was, uh, you know, the 1960s. This was, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and um, the SCLC and, and the, the mainstream civil rights movement was really pushing this, this uh, idea of nonviolence. And the Panthers were young people. Most of them were, uh, you know, they, well, initially they were all out of Oakland, California. And they didn't have necessarily the patience or the same ideology that a lot of the SLCC and, and the, again, the more mainstream civil rights organizations had. And they were taking their cue in a lot of ways from um, Malcolm X, who had, who had just been assassinated the year before they formed. Um, and and other organizations like uh, SNCC, which was becoming a little bit more militant in their views, uh, guys like Robbie Williams, who was a renowned um, shoot first, ask question, questions later, uh, black militant leader, the, the deacons of defense. So there were other organizations and groups of people that were, um, you know, advocating for armed self-defense. That's the key thing I think a lot of people don't understand is armed self-defense. And, you know, it's one thing that when when gun rights advocates, they, they, you know, scream about the right to bear arms, but most of them are a certain, you know, shade of, of uh, pigment of, of, of melanin. So, um, and I think that 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 idea of the non-submissive black person, especially the non-submissive black man, you know, carrying a a gun, is uh, can be pretty terrifying to people, and and deservedly so, because the 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 people that were most afraid were the oppressors, the people that were in charge of maintaining the status quo. I think the thing that one of the problems the Panthers faced was that that was also a scary image to people who weren't necessarily down with the status quo that, that felt that changes need to be made, but, um, you know, still didn't know what to make of, of black folks carrying guns. The interesting thing about the Panthers too, and I know you're saying that, that some of this perception of them is changing right now because of the protests. But one of the things that struck me is that they have this very iconic 
powerful image in our history and in our like iconography and um, but they seem to have basically gone away uh, in terms of being really active and and Talk a little bit about that kind of contrast between, because it seems hard to maintain, it seems interesting that both of those things happened, that they're powerfully remembered and yet kind of disappeared. Yeah, well, that's, and that's when you become legend, you know, that's, that's when something goes from being sort of a historical um, figure to, to something more of a legendary status, which is what I think happened with them. And, and you know, and the interesting thing too is that that, that iconic look that we talk about um, didn't last very long. They, you know, they, they were only carrying guns for maybe the, like outwardly carrying guns in public for the, maybe the first two years or so. And then the law really cracked down. They stopped carrying guns. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, as, as the, party progressed and then started to splinter into factions and then the the government um really pushed their oppressive measures against the panthers i think a lot of it became advantageous for people to not advertise that they were you know part of this organization it was it was as you said earlier it was made up um of, of young people there was it, was it was mostly young folks that initially joined and you know, the cops came down hard. The FBI came down hard. They were throwing people in jail and killing people and framing them for crimes they didn't commit. And at some point, your spirit just becomes broken. And, and I think that that's, that's what happened in large part to the, the party. And when you understand the, the counterintelligence programming that the FBI did, you, you also understand how the feds were able to get the party to turn on itself and get people, they, they created divisions and, and rivalries and, and in some cases like very violent and deadly rivalries. And so the party was never, you know, in a lot of ways its fate was sealed very, very early on. There's, you know, there's now evidence that supports the idea that it had been infiltrated by the FBI as early as the first few weeks of their formation in 66. And it's still difficult sometimes to suss out who was an informant and who wasn't. But it, it's it's pretty clear that the the push to, um, to, to destroy their reputability and to, to make them terrifying was going on right from the beginning. And, and in that regard, the, um, you know, at least up until right now, I would have to say in my, my belief that the, the FBI and, and the government, state and, and federal government that worked to suppress the, the Panthers in a lot of ways were more successful than the Panthers were in the long run. Because the fact that we're still asking, you know, who were the Panthers? What were they about? What's their legacy? The fact that so many people don't understand them now, and it's only been 50 something years. It's not like we're talking about an organization that was like 150 years ago. Um, the fact that that they're still so misunderstood and and still so much of an enigma and and more legend than than um, than reality, I think speaks to how effectively they were suppressed and and the public perception of them was molded by outside forces. 
because the Black Panthers were involved in social programs, trying to feed people and help educate people, that was almost as scary as marching through streets with guns, that part of the reason why the police and government were trying to suppress what they were doing is they were actually trying to help the Black community rise up from where they were, and that was as bad. Actually, that was worse. And <laughs> and when you really think about it, if all the Panthers were was um, a bunch of armed radicals that wanted to kill cops and go to war with the federal government, they, they would have been able to, the government would have been able to suppress them and destroy them very, very much more quickly, right? Um, because we've seen examples of them doing that with other organizations over the years. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the most successful program that the, the Panthers did was they, they fed poor kids. And, and in feeding poor black kids primarily, they also had um, their, their education programs. And if you go through any of the documents, the, the FBI documents that have been released through the Freedom of Information Act, Hoover is very, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI is very clear that that the the breakfast program is the thing that that he hated the most and and you know when you think about it it's like but he says in in some of these documents and some of these memos is like if if the Panthers succeed in winning the hearts and minds of the people you know we've lost and and that was that was the thing it was always this fear of indoctrinating a younger generation into um, into this ideology of self-defense and self-reliance. And, and I think it's really interesting that when you look at it, that generation that was being served by the, um, by the Panthers, say through their free breakfast program or their education programs, that was one of the key generations that was most decimated by the crack epidemic of the, of the eighties. And, and I, 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 there's there's a direct correlation that people don't talk about too much, but I think the fact that Huey Newton, co-founder of the party, was killed in a you know in in what amounts to basically a drug deal gone bad, and then you have so you have that generation essentially the that boomer generation of of black folks who succumbed to crack early on. And then you have the Gen X generation that were the ones being fed in the, in the 60s and 70s in these food programs, right? And, um, and both of them are, you know, fell victim to not only the suppression of, of an organization that's first and foremost, their, their priority was defending the community and empowering the community, right? And, and once you were able to destroy that, you know, everything else sort of falls into place in terms of oppression and submission. And do you think there's something that the current protesters can learn from what the Black Panthers did? <laughs> yes, there is. I, it's, it's interesting, though. There's two very valuable lessons. One, the, the, the most important one is, you know, be careful because they will, the, 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 the state, the powers that be will stop at nothing to discredit you. And, and early on in the protests, like in, you know, in Minneapolis, when buildings started burning and um, there was very clearly agent provocateurs uh, out there on the streets. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like 
everything that's going on now was going on back in the 60s. The only difference now is that surveillance is, is more um, highly advanced and, and communication is more highly advanced. But, um, you know, the, the, the FBI worked in conjunction with the Chicago Police Department to, to murder Fred Hampton in 1969. And, and, there's, and that's not an exaggeration. That's that's documented proof, and and the state suppressed um, evidence in in the case of Geronimo Pratt to send him to prison for a crime he didn't commit. And 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 the person who pointed the finger at him was an FBI informant. And and I think that what the most valuable lesson we have to learn is that um, we can't underestimate the forces that we're up against and their desire to stop. The, the people from from getting um, out from under their oppressive stance. Uh, and I think that the other thing that that we need to learn from the Panthers, and, and this is something that that really was not is not talked about, is the idea of solidarity. Like the they became their most dangerous in the eyes of the government when um, when they started reaching out to other organizations, and Fred Hampton specifically, and the the uh, the Chicago branch of the Illinois chapter of the party, was was more successful at that than anybody else. And he had built this coalition of um, of youth street gangs in Chicago, and and white radicals, and and Hispanic radicals, and and he was talking about building almost like a people's army of the poor and disenfranchised. And I, and I think it's very telling when you look at all the people that were killed through police actions against the Panthers, none were worse than what happened to Fred Hampton and, and to Mark Clark when they were murdered in, uh, again, in December 69. And, but if you study Fred Hampton and you study what was going on in Illinois, you see this, this blueprint for a, a grassroots movement of solidarity. And I see organizations now that are, some call themselves the new Black Panther Party, and, and there's organizations like that. And, and I don't, I question their commitment to solidarity. I, I question their commitment to working with, with other organizations that have other, um, other priorities in, in addition to a Black Lives Matter priority. And, and I think that that's something that, that I find really troubling and disturbing. It's, it's you can't be a, a Black Lives Matter advocate and not also be a trans lives matters advocate, you know? And, and you can't be, you know, I mean, that's one of my big things has always been the like homophobia within the black community. It's, it's very, troubling to me it's it's that notion that okay we don't want to be oppressed but we're going to press these folks over here um but yeah there's the uh, the biggest lesson to learn is you know be careful what you say over the phone and what you say in emails because they will um they will come after you and and hopefully some of that will be driven home in in the book and and you know i i think that we see it now in, you know, we see these these protesters that are protesting wearing masks and and the the um, quarantining that's going on with COVID. We see these white folks with um, AR-15s walking the streets, and and nothing's happening to them. And then you see unarmed protesters and and little old white men holding black signs, Black Lives Matter signs, getting the the crap beaten out of them by the police. And um, 
and and that's it. That says everything that you need to know. There that there there are differences in how um, protesters and and freedom fighters are viewed in this country, and and a lot of it depends on whose freedom are we talking about. Um, I don't know if there's anything that you feel you want to add. I just think, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is what I discovered as I was working on this book, you know, here's, I, I was somebody who considered myself, you know, not like a super expert in the, in the Black Panther Party, but I had, you know, a ton of books on my shelf. I had Bobby Seale's books and Huey P. Newton's books and, and probably close to 20 on my shelf that I'd read. And, and as, I, as I really dug deep into this project, I realized how much I don't know. You know, like the more I learned, the more I didn't know. Um, and, and the more I discovered that needed to be told that, that still is, is lacking. There's, there's yet to be a really good comprehensive historical account of women in the party. And I think that that's a, you know, that's a shame. And, and I, so I guess the thing is, is like, don't think you know anything about the Panthers, you know, unless you were a Panther yourself, you know, or you have a, a family member who is a Panther, don't think that just because you watched a, a documentary or read a single book, you, you understand this party. And, and one of the things I'd like to see, you know, moving forward, my, you know, maybe my book will help it happen. Is there still people alive who were part of the party, you know, who were there? I'd like to hear more of their stories. I'd like to hear um, a more comprehensive history than, than what's out there right now, because what's out there is, built primarily around the the memoirs and the the autobiographies of you know a dozen or so key people and then a ton of misinformation provided by the government and filtered through mainstream media um i i think that the, like this history is still being written like we see it right now and you know with black lives matter and everything that's going on around that that is is a continuation of the same struggle so um I just want to see people really, you know, I, I'd like to see books come out that are way better than mine and mine is going to be awesome. So um, <laughs> that's what I'd like to see. Okay, great. Well, thank you again. Cool. Thank you. David F. Walker, author of the upcoming book, The Black Panther Party, a graphic novel. Now I speak with Henry Lee Wallace V, who joined the Black Panther Party in San Diego when he was just a teenager. And now he serves as the chairman of the reactivated San Diego Black Panther Party. He was kind enough to invite me into his home for an interview I was doing for KPBS. And all around the room were photos of his family, photos of his activism in the Black Panther Party, and things like a VHS copy of Roots. So here's my interview with Henry Lee Wallace V. We talk about how he got involved with the Black Panther Party as a teenager, and also how the Black Panther Party and its activism in the 1960s has laid some of the groundwork for the current protests that we're seeing now. So Henry, what would you like people to know about the Black Panthers in San Diego? Well, I, I want people to realize that San Diego itself has never been the utopia that it claimed to be. There have always been racism in this city. 
uh, the, the, the Black Panther Party, when it came out, came out to fight the, the, the injustices of the system itself because the police department was just one part of it. And they were uh, actually given free range to come into Southeast San Diego and do criminal stuff. I'm not just saying brittle, but criminal. They they did more than just uh, beat up people and stuff like that. Uh, I remember as a child over playing over in our yard on Nautica Street. The police used to come through there and uh, uh, and ask us questions without my mother and father being around. And it was like they was criminalizing us at that point. And so uh, when my mother found out about it, she let them have it. She caught them one day coming by there, and she gave, she read them the riot act. She said, if you don't leave my kids alone, I'll shoot y'all. You see, so it was a thing that it was always uh, the oppression of the minorities, especially blacks. And uh, uh, so even uh, the, the Hispanics, the Mexicans, they suffered as well over in what's called Barrio, Logan, Sherman, stuff like that. So the police had free range. And part of what happened at uh, Chicano Park, uh, when they put the five freeway in, I was I was born around that time, I, you know, I was around. And uh, they wanted to put a, a highway patrol in the middle of our neighborhoods, right there off the five freeway, and the people rose up. They said, no, it's not going to happen like that. So uh, the Black Panther Party was part of that back in those days uh, to help uh, keep the, pl the police out of our neighborhood. We already had a problem with now you want to put the highway patrol in there. They had one black detective, Johnny Williams, and he was to do their bidding, but he was playing the, 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 uh, uh, where he would, they would give him instructions, but he knew the community. So he would let us know when they planning on doing something do low in our community. So uh, that's a beautiful thing. And he would warn uh, the Black Panther Party of uh, impending police actions against the Black Panther Party because he realized that we needed uh, organizations such as ours to start checking the police's uh, power in our community. How did you initially get involved in the Black Panthers? Ooh, that's a long story. You sure you want to hear it? <laughs> <laughs> How old were you to start with? I was 15, 16 years old, something like that. That's, and uh, I laugh at uh, some of the critics uh, when we reactivated saying, well, you was only 16 years old. How could you have been a Black Panther? Well, all of us was young. And then, 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 then I tell them, you need to go and read your history books. And that way you'll know that it wasn't an old folks thing. It was a young folks because the older people were seasoned to believe that everything was going to get all right through prayer and uh, uh, a little bit of protests and stuff like that. But the younger kids seized the times. Uh, they realized that we were under attack. And uh, the, when the Black Panther Party uh, came out and they went to Sac uh, Sacramento to the state capitol, that brought up a groundswell of young people that wanted to be part of this movement to help move things ahead because we was tired of getting brutalized and, and disrespected in our community. And uh, so when I was in the Bay Area, uh, 
my my parents uh, moved us to uh, Fairfield Susun, uh because my stepdaddy needed a job. He had just got out the military, and the only money he got was $50 paycheck for retirement. And that wasn't enough to take care of a family of seven to nine people. If his daughter from a previous marriage came, that would boost the family up to nine children. So we went up there, and he worked for a while, and then he lost that job, had to go to Mare Island, get another job. We wound up moving to Vallejo, where I became infected with music, uh, you know, with the American bandstand and all that. So I started doing Temptations and Miracles, me and my my brother and sister, these two right here, uh, we formed a group. And so we moved to Richmond. We're living in South Richmond. Uh, me and my brother were shopping downtown San Diego for, uh, for our outfits, for our shows, which uh, we had a show at the Catholic uh, Teen Post. And so while we was down there, all of a sudden uh, a riot broke out. Uh, and the police came, and uh, they had guns and stuff, and uh, they were shooting down at the people that was rioting and stuff. That's when they didn't have no, no, no conscience about killing people. You know, as you know, uh, with some of the university went on the universities and killed people. And so, uh, me and my brother, like I counted before, we ran because we was young. We didn't know, you know, how to deal with that situation. Uh, wind up running to an old funeral home, a, a black-owned funeral home, which was one of them Victorian houses you would see down south with the big picture windows and all. So they had a old black lady that was in the window in the uh, in a coffin, and uh, so me and my brother hid up under that coffin. And then when everything cleared, then we went home, and my mother got on us about it. She said, "You boys, we gonna get you out of here." So she moved us back to San Diego. My sister uh, went to San Diego State College, which is now San Diego State University, and she was in the Black Student Union. So uh, she uh, and her boyfriend, Kenny Denman, uh, was approached by uh, the Black Panther Party uh, in 67 to open up a chapter of the Black Panther Party. And from there, my mother joined, my stepfather joined, and then I joined, me and my brothers. And uh, ever since then, we've been Black Panthers. <laughs> and what was it about the Panthers that appealed to you, that made it something that you wanted to be a part of? It was man on man. They had muscle. They showed that they weren't scared of the police. And they, and, they, and they educated us on the Second Amendment, that we had the right to bear arms to protect ourselves. Because like I was saying, back then, the police didn't have a problem with shooting you or pulling you over. If me and you was in the car together, they gonna tell you, did he kidnap you? They would say stuff like that. And they would handcuff me, put me on the ground. And if it was two or more blacks in the car together, they'll pull us all out the car and put us on the ground and then wanna talk to us. So it was that disrespect of our community. Whereas if you go in the white community, they just say, oh, Johnny's all right. And, and Susie, all right, and you kids have a good time. 
But us, it was a different story in our community and white America didn't understand that. Only the ones that was educated that actually came down to see, because you remember the freedom riders and stuff like that, the people that was going in the, down south in the bus. Well, we had some students come and live at our house during the time we was in the Black Panther Party. And they came there to learn about the conditions in, south, in Southeast San Diego. And so all these things attributed to me becoming the person that I was at that time. And uh, it, was, it was just a, a, a serious time that a lot of people didn't get it. You know, uh, with J. Edgar Hoover on, on the pedestal sitting up there, oh, I'm protecting America, and they the greatest threat against uh, the United States. When you was brutalizing us, and you knew what you was doing, but you tell the American public that we didn't have a right to stand up for our civil rights. And we knew what was going on down there, but white America and others that wasn't coming into our communities are wanting to know, or they sympathize, but they wouldn't do any action against it because they f felt uh, retaliation. Well, that's part of what made me stand up for my people because I knew that we was going to get no help from them. And, and it was a saying that came out that I'd rather die standing up than on my knees. I'd rather be on standing. I'm not gonna be in a prayer position so you could still brutalize me. Look at what was going on with Martin Luther King at that time. He'd go out there and protest and they would sick the dogs on him, water holes. I mean, every entity that we paid for, the taxpayers, the, ta the tax, our tax money was going towards brutalizing our people. Fire department pouring water on us. Uh, 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 the police beating us with baton. They sicking dogs on human beings because they want the right to vote. No, we had to become Black Panthers at that time. And anybody with any sensibilities at that time would stand up. The old folks were scared because they was used to, you know, the system that it was. They figured if we just held out long enough, they're gonna let us vote. They're gonna let us have a decent job. My mama couldn't even get a job. Mama, the only job they would give my mama is a maid job. My mama got tired of that, you know, and her husband that did uh, 20 plus years in the military, he couldn't even get a decent job. Every time he got a job, they wanted him to be subservient or something, and a man can only take so much. And your whole family ended up joining. Yeah. My whole family became Black Panthers. That's what our food program is named after now, Evelyn Frankie Germany uh, Free Bulk Food Program. So I named it after them because they were dedicated to feeding people. And even when the homeless became a problem, you know, the cameras came on that, ooh, we have a homeless problem. We always had one. But it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's due to what? Capitalism. If you follow the money, all the ills that we have in this country is from capitalism. And I'm, I'm not against companies making money, but I'm against corporate greed. Mm -hmm. Corporate greed do not give nothing away unless they are threatened with the bottom line. We're not getting them. You see what happened when they burned down the banks? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. They, oh, we need to do something. Let's help these people. Black lives matter. They wasn't saying Black Lives Matter until they start burning up their stuff. And and I'm like I tell people, I'm not down for violence or anything, but sometimes violence begets begets some changes.
I told you, you didn't want me to start talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk a little bit about what the Black Panthers did in San Diego that might surprise people, because I think people have this iconic image of the Black Panthers. Uh, you know, the, you mentioned going to Sacramento. Like, that was a huge thing. That I mean, you had yeah. Ronald Reagan talking about gun control after that. Like, right. who could no, imagine? They were talking about gun control <laughs> before that. And, and, and you're right to a degree because the Black Panthers was out there at that time with the guns, uh, defending the community, letting the police know that we can have our weapons. You know, we're going to watch and observe what you do to our people like the people is doing today. But then we didn't have the, 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 the luxury of cell phones with cameras. And so Ronald Reagan and them decided they're going to pass a bill there to limit you carrying a gun uh, in public. And so the Black Panther Party went up there to protest that. And, uh, and, and uh, fortunate or unfortunate, they wind up on the Senate floor or the legislature floor. And yeah, that was done. But in San Diego, what we were doing, we started the f food program here, which was you know kind of like uh, the thing to do at that time. Uh, we had a free food giveaway at Christ the King Church on 32nd Imperial. And that was supported through the generous donations of Bruno's Market on uh, 30th and Imperial and Sawoya Brothers, which was on 30th and uh, Ocean View. Some of the Panthers went over there and talked to them and let them know that, listen, we're trying to feed poor kids that are not getting enough food to uh, go to school and study. And they was good enough to uh, give us the food. And then shortly after that, we uh, partnered up with uh, some of the university people and helped get a clinic in the middle of 30th and Imperial. Because if you know back in the day, if you know your history, uh, Imperial was considered the Black Wall Street of San Diego. We were segregated from La Jolla, Linda Vista, places like that, even downtown San Diego. And so we, uh, our people, had our businesses right up and down Imperial, Market Street. Archie Moore opened up what is uh, his Archie Moore Diner, which is now the House of Metamorphosis. And uh, so uh, we got the students to help put together what was called a crisis center. Then uh, we got uh, uh, help with uh, the importation of black uh, uh, products that would help uh, people to comb their hair and all because what we had back in the day is them little tiny little black combs you still <laughs> see today. And that was used to comb our hair. So we tearing our hair out because our hair was extra curly. So we couldn't really use it or you had to use Madam C.J. Walker's pressing iron to press your hair or you go and get some what they call conk, which was made out of lye, and would uh, uh, straighten out your hair. And by the time you get through with that, you got sores all in your scalp trying to straighten your hair out so you can use the little tiny combs. So the Black Panther was instrumental in some of those things. And it was various programs like the senior program, uh, where we go and check on seniors, and uh, if they need something, we run and do it for them. Or if they need to just be helped across the street, we do that. So our programs was progressing, but before you know it, we was under the attack of the government because they didn't want us to help. They really didn't have no programs to help anybody other than welfare, and they used that as a club. You don't get no job, you get welfare, but we're going to hold a club over your head. 
So the Black Panther Party was trying to empower the community at the time and the government with our money, your money, used that to repress any progress that would happen in the, the ghettos of America. Now, as someone who lived through the protests in the 60s and 70s, how are you viewing the current protests? Do you feel that they're different in some way or that change can't, because, you know, in the 60s, we kind of felt like, oh yeah, change is gonna happen. Like we, we felt there was this groundswell and then not as much change as needed to happen happened. So how are you feeling about these protests? Do you see something different about them? Uh, are you hopeful? Oh yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, the, 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 what's happening today is the chickens that came home to roost. The seeds that was planted back in those days are fertilized now. They're turning into plants, beautiful flowers and stuff, because the stuff that the Black Panther Party tried to do back in those days was get all the people together and let them know that you're being exploited by the system. Because we started off working on just for the black people, but as time went along, we understood that there was other people that were suffering at different rates. You had the senior citizens that they were disrespecting, telling them that you cannot work a job after you're 55 or 60 years old, or you can't drive a car no more, stuff like that. And, and, and then you had the poor whites in the Appalachians uh, that was being disrespected and exploited uh, in the coal mines of America and telling them that the blacks are the enemy, it's much like Donald Trump is doing today. You know, he, he's a waver on things, but he's sending out signals to other folks that oh, they just a problem. So this protest that's going on now is the results of what's been going on before. And we did have some progress, believe it or not. Because uh, I can look back over the eons and see where my mother was a maid. Had my mother been around today as a young woman, she might have got a college degree. She might have been able to be a lawyer or a judge or all that. Even though racism still exists, it's in the fabric of America. But I have seen progress where the police department is being brought down to uh, a level where they starting to understand that they are not the ultimate power the people is the power. There's been many revolutions, but America forget, they, they don't want to teach that to the people. They talk about the American Revolution, but they need to talk about what's going on now. The same stuff that they're doing to people King George did to the colonists back in the day. But they're they, 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 they trying to learn. I see things that's, that's starting to progress. And these kids got to stay the course. They have to stay proud. I am so proud of them. I really am because I see it, but I don't want them to think that they have won uh, one victory or two victories and let it go. We got to go all the way to the core of the issue and, 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 and get rid of this disease like this coronavirus, get rid of the racism disease, and people need to start learning what's going on within our own country because this country could be great, not again, but it could be great in a real way where it accepts all its citizens as equal and respect the fact that we all live and breathe on this planet and we need each other.
you know, but you can't move forward saying all lives matter when one segment of the race is being slaughtered and killed. Uh, it's all this that long. We go back 400 years of uh, state-sponsored killings, and the police department used to always gloss over everything. Now they're starting to understand that they got some rogue cops in there. So because of the progress that's been made since the 60s, where now you have black people in political position, you got Hispanics, you got Asians, you got people in a political position, and it's like people are starting to wake up and understand that this stuff is really happening. So I told you don't let me talk too long. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think could have been different if the Black Panthers in the 60s had the access to social media that we have now? Oh, I think we did pretty good. <laughs> Back in those because our history is still around, even though San Diego Black Panther history was glossed over because of, uh, I guess, uh, the fact that uh, blacks is only 6% of the population here, and uh, whoever controls the narrative is able to, you know, sort of gloss over the history. Uh, the only thing we got left video-wise is the 1968 uh, riot that's on uh, YouTube, but uh, yeah, it's uh, 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 I, I don't think that we could have did it much better than what we done with what we had. Well, it just seems like part of what's making it feel a little different right now is that you have not just somebody's word that something happened, but you have these powerful videos to really say like you can't turn away from this anymore. Like no, you, you see George. Floyd, or you see that woman, Amy Cooper, trying to get uh, Chris Cooper arre arrested. I mean, you see these things and you can no longer go like, oh, you're exaggerating. It's not happening. It's not as bad as you think. So I'm just... And the young man that was hunted down yeah. while he was jogging, he was hunted like an animal in the jungle or something. You got a man in a car following him, chasing him in the car to corral him into where those people were waiting in ambush to kill the young man. So yeah, you're right that the, the technology we have today is actually putting it out there, you know. But like I said, back in the day, we fought with what we had and we brought the, the world's attention to it. Unfortunately, as time went along, then everybody, you know, with the, with the changes that was happening, because there has been changes, uh, people thought that everything was all right. But we still had an underlying issue going on, which is racism. And racism is taught in this country subliminally. And some right out, look at those police that they caught on the video. Thank God they check the video every so often in the cars and all. They talking about a race war. So you got people with that mentality that, that feels as though blacks is a problem. Well, not a problem. The problem is that you won't accept the fact that you brought a race of people on boats and chains, beat them, and formed the American economic system. Because out of that, it did either, you sent a bunch of Europeans over here on boats that you didn't want to come over here and steal a continent. And then you go over to another continent, which is called Africa, and you kidnap these people and bring them here to do your work. 
and make these same poor people that w didn't have nothing in England, make them lords over them. Then they turn around and they stole the land from England. Okay, now we are isolated with these people that didn't have too much education. Then the capitalists came in and kept this system going all these years. So, like I said, if you follow the money, that's the problem with racism at this time, and it's taught. They don't teach nobody about nobody's history or anything in school. And if you look at little kids when they start off in school, they are fun-loving, they loving each other, they don't know the difference nothing, but then they wind up getting this education out of their families and stuff like that. Next thing you know, they saying these people is the problem. We're not the problem. It's the system that's the problem. What do you think current protesters could learn from what the Black Panthers did? All they need to do is read our history, what we tried to achieve, which was cut off from the thing. Uh, what we tried to achieve is education, to let people know that we're all the same, that we need to work together, you know. And uh, I think that they need to understand that they have the right to address injustices, just as the Black Panther Party did. So there's, there's a lot of lessons that they can learn, but they need to study history. And do you think San Diego tends to turn a blind eye to racism here in San Diego? Because some people Oh, say... yeah, it's real <laughs> easy. San Diego, that they do want to keep it where it's all about the business again, is do not have no disturbances in San Diego because we want to attract business here. We want to attract money here. So uh, 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 Mayor Faulkner, you know, uh, he's, uh, I guess, attempting to, you know, appease the protesters. And if you look at the reason why, it's because they want to make sure that San Diego stay a safe place for people to come here and spend money. The San Diego Black Panther Party kind of went dormant or underground for a while, but yes. you reactivated it the year... 50th anniversary and the year Trump was elected, right. was that correct? Yeah, in uh, 2016, we uh, it started off with me going to San Diego State. I was driving the bus and everything, and I'm listening to all these different things about uh, uh, giving out civil rights awards to city council members and stuff like that, uh, uh, what they have done in the community and this and that, and I'm looking... I said they never talk about what the Black Panther Party tried to do. And when I mentioned it to some people, they were like, San Diego had a Black Panther Party? I said, yes, we did. So one of the professors told me, well, we need to do something about that. And he uh, basically gave me lip service. He didn't take it no further than that. Then I approached uh, Cheryl Morrow, uh, Willie Morrow's uh, 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 beauty supplies and she's an editor over there that she does to monitor the newspaper so me and her talked about it she said well we could do something about it so she started doing a film she wanted to record what was going on and so we decided from that point to uh, figure out what our next plans is so I got with my brother which was a young Black Panther back in the day he was like little Michael on uh 
on uh, Good Times, Patrick Germany. So uh, we talked about it then, Ibrahim, we talked about it, and so they wanted to reactivate. And I told them, no, I said that what we need to do is get the history going. So as I started digging things, I found out that some of the original Panthers was coming to San Diego to speak at the museums and stuff. I said, well, they got them coming here, but they never talk about San Diego Black Panthers. And so one of the uh, women down at the History Seminar gave me the phone number to one of the Black Panther Party which members, which was actually on this uh, DVD, Vanguard of the Revolution. And I called him, and he got to telling me different things that had been going on since we've been dormant. So he told me about a meeting that they have once a month up in Los Angeles at a restaurant called Simply Wholesome. And so I went up there and I talked to some of them and I started feeling, I said, oh my God, some of us are still coming together. So I let them know who I was and all. And so they told me about the 50th anniversary is coming up and all the Black Panthers from around the world was gonna go. And so I started investigating and everything. I went up there and I found out that the Black Panther Party wasn't active as an organization, but they had what was called the Black Panther Party Alumni Association. So I came back from three days of being on high, being with all these beautiful people from around the world at the Oakland Museum, at that courthouse where Huey Newton was uh, uh, being held and Bobby Seale and all. And came back and I talked to Ibrahim and Patrick. I said, yeah, we need to reactivate for social change. I said, we're not going to be donning the berets and the leather jackets and going out following the police. I said, the community can do that. I said, they have these cell phone cameras and stuff like that. So some, some, some of the original Panthers here in San Diego figured they need to go back to 1966. I said, no. I said, this is 2017 now. I said, we need to be up to date on things. So I, we reactivated and start holding up what was called the Black Panther Breakfast Forum, uh, where people start coming from all over the place just to hear our story uh, down at Bonnie Jean's Soul Food. So we ran that for a year to get the feedback from the community and all. And then we figured, let's go back to some of the social programs, start giving out food because we, we got a bad homeless problem here. We got a problem with low income, jobs is not good in San Diego for minorities. And so we started back giving out food with the ideal of putting together other programs as we go. So uh, some of the programs that we want to do is education for children from preschool to fourth grade. And uh, the same thing with uh, the senior program. So we're going to activate that as time go along. We just recently got a bump in membership. Uh, so we, we're forming a separate group of uh, supporters for the Black Panther Party programs here in San Diego. But my mission, as I started off, was just to get our history out there and let people know that you did have heroes in your community. And do you have any last words you'd like to say to people? Yeah. I want you guys to know that the Black Panther Party stand with those that stand on the side of justice and that we want just what you want. But you got to understand that everybody need to come to the table. Everybody need to be part of this situation. And you all have the power 
to make change. But you can't sit up there and say, oh, those poor black people, oh, they just brutalized them. Get off your ass and do something. You know, you can vote, whatever. Don't let our country go down the tube because you are sitting there uh, sympathizing, but you're not getting up to vote. You are sitting there not getting up saying anything. You are sitting there and not going out there and enjoying the protests. Because if we work together, we're going to have a better society. Then you won't have to worry about people being killed in the street or people being discriminated against. You won't have this poor situation. America is land of the plenty. And the wealth should be shared. And I'm talking to you capitalists out there. Y'all need to be more proactive in returning things back to the community so we don't have this situation. Power to the people. All right. I want to thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Henry Lee Wallace V, chairman of the San Diego Black Panther Party. Thanks for listening to this bonus edition of KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. For the next episode, I'll be talking to some of the creators of Apple TV's Mythic Quest. I know, it's not a film, but during quarantine, if I can find anything that's worth watching and enjoyable, I'm going to highlight it. So till our next film fix, or TV one, this is Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.